Hey, this is Lee. I really hope you've been enjoying the Business of Marketing podcast. It's from marketers and for marketers, and my intention is to bring you value, experiences, and insights that you can use. Also, if your company would like to have their own podcast, I would love to help. The team at Content Monster specializes in B2B podcasts. So if we can help, contact me at contentmonster.com. That's contentmonster, M-O-N-S-T-A.com. Enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Business of Marketing Podcast where we have conversations with some of the most influential and thought-provoking minds in marketing, sales, and business. And here's your host, A. Lee Judge. Welcome again to the Business of Marketing. I'm A. Lee Judge. Since about 2010, companies began to realize that their new storefront was their website. And since then, more customer relationships start on websites than any other channel. The fun part is that Google runs the world and it keeps us on our toes with attempts to satisfy the algorithms and to get our web efforts to reach the masses. That's why we need experts like today's guest. Our guest this episode has consulted with various enterprises and well-known brands for over 10 years while playing key roles with multiple agencies and solution providers in the inbound marketing industry. Known to many as SEO Steve, this digital marketer is also a multi-location SEO expert, an adjunct professor, and author. So to share his insights on SEO today, I'm happy to welcome to the podcast, Steve Weidman. Mr. Judge, thanks for having me on the show today. Happy to, to hang out with you and talk shop. Definitely love talking shop, especially on this one, the one that I feel like is changing so much and is always uh, a needle in lots of marketers' side, and, and that's SEO. But before we get into that, Steve, I know there's more about your story. So I was very brief on purpose. I want you to tell us more about yourself and your journey in SEO. Sure. Well, I started as a webmaster, like many of us. I enjoyed building websites. And uh, with building websites comes how to drive traffic to them. And, you know, you, you try different things and you do email marketing and you do uh, paid advertising. And then suddenly you realize, I don't have the same budget as some of these big companies do. I'm yeah. going to have to figure out how to get free traffic to my website, what do I do? Or to the clients that we're working on. And that's that's what um, kind of ignited my my passion for search was how can I drive as much free traffic? Because you really felt really felt like you were hacking traffic, you know, when in the early days of SEO. You're like, I was able to get, you know, a thousand visits to this website without paying anything for it, just by adding some search terms, just by um, creating content that the competitors um, don't have or better content than what they have. And so it was a lot of fun. Um, I went back to school, got a degree in e-business management. I got to learn everything from database and um, uh, web server administration to programming, basic programming, and graphic design. Funny enough, my graphic design teacher um, said I would never have a career in marketing, which is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> what, what did they and, mean? Uh, yeah, and here I am, you know, 15 years later with, uh, you know, a, a lot more under my belt than I ever expected. Uh, so I went back to school, I got that, that degree, and... Um, Started in corporate at a, a company called Pacyolan, which is like a Ticketmaster company. And I got to work with email and, and very minimal SEO, mostly image optimization to be able to load thousands of, of people on a server at once. Um, and then I picked up a small position with a company called Disney. And um, okay, it wasn't a small position. It was a very <laughs> exciting position. I ran the paid ads for Disneyland.com, uh, commerce and marketing commerce for tickets, packages, reservations, and marketing for a new Nemo ride and um, 
grad night and all sorts of cool things that they were doing. And then this new brand that, that just came out uh, called Adventures by Disney. And Adventures by Disney was interesting because the whole website was Flash-based. And I was running paid ads. All the ads were pointing to this one single URL that was Flash-based. And not every browser could render Flash. So I had to convince my boss at the time to take it from Flash to HTML and to give me the opportunity to do some SEO. So I worked for Disney for a couple of years. And um, then I got a job offer with an agency that was almost twice as much, but with all of the cool perks that Disney you know, brings with it. Um, did that for a couple of years and realized agencies in the 2000s, not exactly the most ethical in how they approach, sell, and deliver on search. So, um, you know, to, to sort of be closer to my family and, and get out of, of that agency game, I decided to branch out on my own. 2010, I was just Steve Wiedemann, SEO expert. And 2015, my, my team and, and friends that I kind of carried along the way, um, we all got together and created Wiedemann Consulting Group. And six years later, here I am with uh, some pretty exciting accounts under my belt and just launched the book you'd mentioned uh, with a company called Stukent. So all the colleges that are using Stukent for their certificate programs will be using you know, our, our SEO textbook. So I'm really excited about that. That's an interesting story. You know, it's something that um, I typically ask my guests because guests are, how did you how did you get from where you are? Because most marketers, most people in marketing did not start in marketing. And you mentioned that you have some graphic design background and some... You know, oh, my, my graphic design background is not that great, but web design for sure. Web design. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we tend to come from either something creative, whether it be web design, which uh, come, I've got a question later about that too, web design versus web development. Um, but, you know, something creative or, you know, something analytical, and they all kind of have, have merged in this world of digital marketing where you can come from any different direction, whether it be journalistic or creative or, you know, analytic. Uh, there's a place for you now in today's digital marketing. Right. And if you're competitive, if you, if you love to, to see yourself move up in search results and, and look at those numbers and see your page, whether you designed it, whether you wrote it, um, you know, whether you're behind the the technology that's powering the mobile experience for it, whichever role you're playing in, in helping to get that page to rank, if you are fascinated and passionate about watching that page move up um, and having it appear for more search terms, then SEO is your game, right? It's it's what mm-hmm. um, it's what I got addicted to and it's what I've got a few of my clients addicted to, some more than others, unfortunately. I, I get still get text messages from one of my clients who checks his rankings every morning because he knows the dollar value of moving from position yeah. one to two in a retail market where his products are in the thousands. Yeah. So he'll send a text message and say, hey, Steve, I just moved down number three for this term. Can you see what's going on? You know, and it's like, you have a whole SEO team now. Why don't you start with them? I know, you're just the best at this. And like, no, just ask your team first. We train them. They, they got this, you know. But, uh, but that's how addicted some of these clients are because they know, you know, what, what that value is. They, they're looking at at organic being the number one traffic generator. Even for large brands, organic is usually the number one traffic generator. Though for them, a lot of it comes from branded terms from the offline advertising they're doing where mm-hmm. people are looking for them by name. But um, but yeah, it is, it's an interesting dynamic and we do have to be um, a little bit of a, a multi-personality uh, character to be able yeah. to, to uh, merge all of the different aspects of what goes into SEO. Good content alone won't help you rank. Good tech alone won't help you to rank. Uh, good off-page visibility links and and sort of entity mm-hmm. relationships um, won't help you rank. It's it's all of those things working together in tangent 
um, you know, that that help move your position up over time. And it's nurturing those pages, not just just loading them up and, you know, letting them ride. And I think that's another misconception a lot of businesses have. But um, yeah. that's that's the dynamic of our industry. And I think um, I think that's that's what either drives a really good SEO or it drives people away from SEO into some other industry. Because <laughs> it's a lot of responsibility. There's a lot. And I, I, I'll tell you what, what I want to do is to try to capture some of all those things. Um, as I think about what you just said, I want to I want to try to wrap it up and get it in three things, basically. So yeah. what I hear looking at, you know, some of the things, some of the services you provide and some of the things you coach on and, and teach on. Um, so I want to try to cover three things in this, in this, uh, this conversation. One, talk a lot about local SEO versus a multi-location SEO. And I want to add in there no location SEO, like your SaaS companies and services. Sure. Um, secondly, web developers versus web designers. Mm-hmm. There is a difference, and I want to make sure our, our audience hears and understands the difference between a web developer and a web designer and how it applies to SEO. And then, of course, my company, Content Master, we create content. And as we explain to our clients... It's a great name. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Our focus isn't... We don't sell SEO as a service, a standalone service. But when we create content, we make sure there's SEO in the mix, that there's SEO backing it up. So those three things I want to definitely touch on. So starting with local SEO versus multi-location SEO. How does an SEO strategy differ between local and multi-location? Sure. I I think the primary difference is is where you're pointing the the traffic, right? For multi-location brands, you're going to point a lot of the traffic to the specific location pages. You've got uh, 100 locations. They all have their own specific web page. Most of the traffic you're going to try to drive to those pages. Where if you're just a single location, you don't have store location pages because you're just one store, you're just one location. So mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of the focal points that we'll put into uh, getting a page to rank the the hours of operation, the directions, the maps, the you know all, all those those different attributes that play a role in in where we show up below the map pack and sometimes even in the map pack. Um, you know those those things are going to be omnipresent across the footer of that single location website. That's mm-hmm. the primary difference. Beyond that. Um, the the four fundamentals of local SEO aren't different at all. They're it's still making sure your business data is is accurate and and is being fed to all the right places where it's being purchased and used for directories such as um, Data Axle and Locally's Newstar and Foursquare. Right, you, you make sure your business data is in there and managed either through a Bright Local or a Moz Local, you know, or or some other local data management. Number two is going to be that local page content. Whether we're a single location and we're putting all that great information, you know, into the lower portion of our page, maybe even into the upper portion, depending on which page we're on on the website. For our multi-location brands, you know, it's going to be that single location page. And if you have more than one location in a city, you might even have a city-level page. Mm-hmm. Now you have two opportunities to appear in search. You have one to have in the map packs with your two locations or three. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've also got the organic listing below the map where you can have your city show up. So the city-level page, or CLP, and the property-level page, or PLP, give you more real estate and search results. We recently did a study. If you look at our, our website, we threw it in the top navigation for local SEO um, best practices. We actually studied 300 local pages, mm-hmm. and we came up with specific statistics that will help SEOs and digital marketers like, like yourself to, um, to build a business case. When a client says, why do I need this? There's an actual statement in there that says, Hyperlocal content will give you a 107% competitive advantage, right? So we actually try to make it actionable and give 
our community some arsenal to go back to the developers and the business owners to really optimize those pages. Third is going to be your business data visibility. How often is Googlebot and Bingbot finding your business name, address, and phone number across the web, hopefully in all the same places your, your competitors are, hopefully in all of the local regional city directories, hopefully in all the industry directories. Uh, if you're a lawyer, you're in Avo and Justia and lawyers.com and fine law and all law and you know all of those, right? Um, so that's number three. And then number four is going to be your reputation because nobody clicks on a one-star review. So mm. um, those are sort of those, those key elements, right, of, of a local SEO play, whether you're single location or multi-location. Where, mm. where I see the problem, the challenges, is, is that there's still business owners and marketers that feel like it's a set it, forget it. But if we're nurturing all four of those areas over time, we're getting our business information into more directories and more placements, maybe even on local blogs, we're getting more links and visibility to our websites. We're getting more reviews and ratings. Um, maybe even giving some cues to people who are giving reviews to use mm -hmm. words that describe our products and services so that we appear for a wider, a wider array of them. And setting those goals and saying, hey, hey, local SEO team, um, in the next year, uh, this, this is what we should be hitting. This is our goal for data. This is our goal for our local pages, conversion rates and, um, and keyword rankings. This is our goal for our data visibility and how many citations of our business we have. This is our goal for reviews. And then every month you sit down and you go through that and you hold each other accountable to the results. Maybe even do some performance incentives to motivate the team to, to go above and beyond. But that to me is, is sort of the essence and foundation of a really strong local SEO strategy for higher placement in the map packs and that landing page optimization for the organic uh, below the map packs in a local search query. Now you use the term map pack. What is that? Those are the three listings that appear from Google Maps in a, a web result. If you do right, a search at right google.com, they'll show maps. Right? Okay, okay. Yeah, you know, I'll admit, so my company is, well, based on my previous network is where my, where my company customer base started from. Mostly technology, SaaS companies. Um, and so we're primarily B2B. And I admit, we often forget about B2C because we don't, you know, we have BDC people in the audience when I go speak, for example. Um, sure. We have BDC clients who come to us, but we know that our target is typically B2B. Right. And so sometimes our content misses the mark on talking to the B2C audience because that's not always, that's not the focus of our audience. So it's sure. really interesting to me to hear you tell me because I'm, I'm learning about the local part because I'm so focused on B2B. Right. Um, even some of the terminology you're using uh, is is new to me because I'm so focused on B2B. So I'm yeah. glad we're providing some some value to our B2C listeners who have these local businesses and, and can learn from this. Yep. Um, so now... I can tell you for, um, for B2B, yeah. it, it is a different dynamic, right? Yeah. For B2B, when we think about paid or organic search, the funnel's a little bit different. The call mm -hmm. to action isn't buy, purchase, order, book now. It's, it's a soft conversion. It's getting them to engage in some way where they become part of your reach so that you can take them down a journey through email, through remarketing, through you know bringing them back, you know through a sales process by showing them convincing and helpful content. I would say the upper funnel content strategy is much more important in B two B and than B two C. B two C it's still important, but I think for a lot of people they're just looking for a product, get it, and they're done. But for B two B, you know you've you've got to develop a, a trust and rapport with the client. You've got to you've got to convince them that that you're uh, the the vendor that they want to go to through 
through examples, through videos, through help guides. So I think I think using tools like Answer the Public mm-hmm. or SEMrush has a question tool that you can you can filter into to get the who, why, what, how strategies, tips, ideas. I know B 2 C would have recipes too, right? You, you come up with all of these sort of upper funnel um, answers to common problems that happen in the industry. You provide data that only you have. You do your own studies, your own research, your own surveys, your own focus groups, and you come up with information that no one else has. And then you socialize that. You share it through press and PR, real PR, not the old spammy you know, PR web stuff we used to do yeah. back in the early days of SEO, but, but genuine PR. Um, B2B SaaS company discovers that 65% of users on smartphones do X. That's cool. People are interested in that. Drives them to the website. People who are writing similar articles will reference that when they're doing searches so that you earn links instead of having to pick up the phone and call for them. So that B2B you know, cycle is, is definitely, it's definitely longer and it definitely takes a little more creativity mm-hmm. and it takes some patience and a lot of testing, a lot of A-B testing. Let's, let's change the call to action for sign up for a webinar, try a demo for free. Let's, let's start with, um, I read this case study on how so-and-so was able to double their traffic. So right? now you're, you're in my world. Now you're talking my language now, that the mm-hmm. B2B talk. Um, <laughs> so I want to ask you about you, that. You because <laughs> I asked for it. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, like I said, I definitely want to bring the value to B2C listeners because um, we don't talk about B2C enough probably on this podcast uh, because, like I said, my circle tends to be more B2B. Um, but you mentioned earlier, you know, B2B, um, the call to actions are different and this, mm-hmm. the cycle is longer and our clients typically are B2B and so we create content for them and we explain to them that, you know, from the start, before we take on a client, we say, now, this is not advertising. This is content marketing. Mm-hmm. It's a long game. Um, it will help you build brand and trust and, you know, a higher quality client over time. But you have to be patient for that time to pass. Right. Um, so when we talk about SEO, the first thing that comes to mind for them technically, typically is, is words. You know, blog articles, SEO, keywords, and blog articles. Sure. But Content Monster, we generate... We create the heavy lifting stuff. We we create video and podcast, and there's also a big SEO factor in that. Um, I did a talk at Content Marketing World a few years ago called "Content for the Robots," okay. where I went through every kind of content and how you have to be aware of how there's an SEO play in every single kind of content. You right. know, even with video, my dad used to say um, when he was explaining something, he would say, "You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying?" I said, "Well, Google sees what you're saying. You know, if you have a video." Google literally do, literally does see what you're saying. And they and do it, the captioning for free now. So exactly. they That's proof right there. Exactly. I showed on the screen a picture of a video that I uploaded, did nothing, but the captions were generated, which is proof that Google could see the words mm-hmm. that I was saying and could yeah. index that. So yeah, tell me more about, speak to people who, you know, or help me speak to my clients who, you know, I'm creating content for them, audio and video, sure. and how much of an SEO play that is for their websites or for their their marketing. I think I think we could all look at it strategically instead of saying, "Hey, let's just let's just start creating some stuff." Instead, let's look at what's driving traffic to our competitors. Let's look at their top pages that get the most links, the top pages that get the most shares, the the top posts in social that get the most engagement. Let's really take a look at the competitive landscape and some of our own data from our own Google Ads and Bing Ads um, efforts. What search terms? What placements? 
you know, are really driving conversions and customers for us. Um, let's take all of that data and aggregate and let's create a new information architecture for our website that's founded on the top search terms so that we're building our website based on how people search the internet, not based on what we want to share on the internet. And Wait, wait, say that again. I want to repeat that again, please. <laughs> we're, we're building content based on how people search the internet, not based on what we want to share on the internet. I think that's super important mindset because now, you know, I know us, us as business owners, like we do this and we do this and here's why you like us. And it's like, did people ask you for that? Or are you just randomly throwing it out there because you think that's what they want? So <laughs> I, I think in, in taking that other approach of what are people searching for that I offer and how do I emphasize that in my navigation and take all the other stuff I want to share and de-emphasize it and, and maybe just incorporate it into that other content. Once you've built that, that site map, that site plan, the roadmap of content that you're going to create, you're likely going to take that super competitive keyword, right? If you're an attorney, you're probably going to have truck accident lawyer. If you're a B2B SaaS provider in, let's just do um, influencer marketing platform, right? You have a platform for influencer marketing. Um, you have a single page on your website, not your homepage for influencer marketing platform. And then now you're going to take all those great content ideas that, that relates to that parent topic and you're going to put them under that silo. You're not going to put them on a blog post or in a resources section or an article section. You're going to nest it right under that page. So that way, your competitors competing with one page, you're competing with a whole section of content, supportive content that uplinks back to that page through the breadcrumb system, through the site structure, through the information architecture, allowing you to have hundreds of pages of content in support of that parent page for that competitive keyword that you're going after. So I would say if you're if you're going into a content strategy and you and you really want to get aggressive with SEO, you know, do that competitive insight. It it can take months. It took me it took me six months to do the taxonomy plan for Applebee's. It took me ninety days to do the plan for Jacuzzi. Right, um, eighteen thousand keywords to go through and sort through to to organize and theme and sub theme until I I knew absolutely what uh, people were looking for, what attributes, what what different ways that they were searching for these products and services. So um, take the time to do that. And if if you have the budget for it, because it can be expensive and it takes a while to do, once you've got that, you've got your all-inclusive roadmap for the rest of the year. And, and it's going to include both upper and lower funnel. So you take your lower funnel and you prioritize that to make sure that you're driving customers. And then you augment your overall content strategy with your upper funnel by creating a syndication process. When you do launch all those how-to, where-to, why-tos, that fall underneath that parent page. So, so it all kind of plays together into a sitemap, eventually into a calendar, into a content marketing calendar that includes social media sharing. And now you've got a, a workflow. Now you've got a streamlined process and, and you have expectations. Your team knows exactly what content's coming down the pipeline. Um, they know exactly the process of looking at the competitive landscape for the keywords that that content's going to address. And if there aren't any keywords that that content's supposed to address, you have to kind of look at it and say, do we want to have a separate page for this? Or should we just start incorporating some of this language into our, our copy so that we have less pages that that receive you know fewer visits? I know it was me, a lot to take in and unpack, but hopefully that was well, helpful. It, it, made me, it gave me a question, though, a very specific question to a problem that I've seen lots of companies have. And I actually, actually even we've struggled with it a little bit, too. So you mentioned the information architecture of your, of your website. Typically, on a website, you see you have the homepage, you have product pages, product mm -hmm. or service, and you have your blog. 
you mentioned there's somewhere in between there that's not a blog page, but yet it's a topic page. Mm-hmm. How does that work in the website structure? If it's not sure. part of the blog role, mm-hmm. but it's not a product page, right. what is it? It's a great question. And and even even if you read some of my my old ebooks from the 2000s, you'll see that I was really heavy on using blogs for evergreen content. Now I look back at some of those posts and they say 2008, 2009 in the search results. And I'm like, no one's clicking on this, right? Why did I do this? Um, We did it because we could syndicate our RSS feed and get immediate links back to our pages before there was a duplicate content or or thin content update, you know, in 2011, before there was a explicit link uh, penalty that happened with the Google Penguin update in 2012. So, so we used to use the blogs for evergreen and there's still, unfortunately, a lot of business owners that, that don't know that that's not what the blog is for. The blog is for a very timely, here's what's going on right now. Here's, here's our voice on a topic that's, that's being discussed right now. Here's what's going on with our company, our team, our industry. Um, here's some seasonality things. Here's some, you know, it's, it's really sort of time sensitive content that belongs in the blog because some people use RSS feed uh, readers and they like to see new, fresh information about something that's relevant now. Something that that is more evergreen, that's not going to change in the next three to five years, really belongs nested underneath its parent category on the website. If it's a sales page, you know, you you create some links on that sales page to the supportive information, how, what, why, who, and it falls underneath that folder, that directory on your website, um, so that it can support that parent topic. Now, that's that's the approach yeah. we've taken with the clients that we've had the most success for. We had one attorney that we were able to do that with a very competitive national keyword. He closed nearly $40 million in cases in one quarter in 2019. And it was all through this idea of moving content from the blog to nesting it under the appropriate parent keyword that we want ranking. Now, from so a think, technical standpoint, was it just another, this is really under the hood technical, is it another category, another blog role, different RSS feed, that no. it's really technically still a blog role or is it just a standalone nope. page it's a page. Into. It's a page. Yep. Posts post to me are for time-sensitive, time-sensitive. short-term information. Uh, but you, there's no reason why in one of those posts you couldn't put a link to one of those pages and at the end say, hey, if you haven't read our page about what, how, why, check it out here. You could use your blog as a way to promote your pages. Absolutely. But I wouldn't use blog posts anymore for lower funnel or... Um, evergreen content at all. I would keep that That's for short-term information. That's interesting. I think it's de- I think it's debatable. I don't disagree with you, but I know people who would because there's a term evergreen blog content, which is contradicting itself, I suppose. Blogs um, are dated, though. Remember that. Blogs have a, a field that has date, and you can hide it all you want to, but, but it's, it's got a date. It's got a date. So then that page, if it isn't part of your blog role, and is it also not on your menu either? It just lives? It, it, well, it'll be on your menu in that section of your site. So if you're, if you're targeting um, influencer marketing platform, as, as an example, um, when you're in that influencer marketing platform section of your site, then absolutely, you'll have some links either in the navigation, uh, especially on that parent page, so that Google mm-hmm. can crawl from your homepage to that section and then crawl to those pages from that parent page. But, you know, it's, it's grandparents, parent, child relationship in terms of how the, mm. the site's structured and the breadcrumb system that you use, you know, home and category and, and page helps the search engines and the users uh, reverse navigate and understand how your site's structured. 
Gotcha. So not necessarily top level menu, but somewhere on that homepage that can right. breadcrumb you into it. I would put those competitive search terms right in that top menu. You'll you'll see a lot of attorneys doing this now more than ever. And if you use archive.org for those attorney sites, you'll notice it was always home practice areas attorneys. Now mm-hmm. it's car accident lawyer, truck accident lawyer, um, wrongful death lawyer, and then about us and all the other crap that they don't want showing up in search results falls in that other part of the navigation. But their most important keywords are the ones that are in their top nav and linked to the most because that's what they want to dominate for. Okay. Well, I'm going to make sure I'm going to text my developer right now. Please go change this <laughs> because you sold me on that. Definitely. definitely. I, I do have I do have some videos too on on how to build a taxonomy and do some of the keyword research. If, you're, if your listeners are interested, you could totally check out the course that mimics my Cal State Fullerton course. Um, it's at Academy of Search and just use my, my, uh, my handle SEO Steve um, mm-hmm. and all your listeners can get total free access to all of that stuff. Absolutely. Make sure we get those links to put in our um, show notes you as well. got it. Yeah, definitely. So last thing I want to talk on, uh, talk to you about is something I mentioned a moment ago about texting my developer is something that I really want our listeners to understand. I think you're a good person to, to separate the two okay. between developers and designers. You know, sure. back when so, we used to do website design. Uh, we were everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We were everything. And, you know, back when people would say, hey, you know, I can do Photoshop, so can I do a website? No, you've done a picture of a website. You haven't done a website. And then people would chop up Photoshop, call mm-hmm. it a website with no regard to the development to the back end. Right. And then over time, people realize, okay, there's more to it than just a picture on your computer. It's actually sure. a living, breathing, you know, thing. So I think now we're at a point where people are starting to understand there's more to it, at least from the B2B side. B2C, <laughs> maybe don't. They don't know the difference, maybe. So please sure. help us clarify, to those who don't know, the difference between a web developer and a web designer. So that's a, a really easy one, actually. That, Like you said, the, the web designer, the person who's, who's designing what the site's going to look like, lives and breathes in programs like Photoshop. Right? They go into Photoshop, they, they create some graphics, um, it's all just binary zeros and ones, right? If Google were to, to crawl that image, all they would see is zeros and ones. There's no links, there's no text. You might see text, but that text actually embedded, you know, on an, an, an actual image, right? It's an actual JPEG, uh, if you will, right? And there's other tools now that you could use as well to do some design work that, that helps with, you know, as you, as you start to get that transition from design to development. But for the most part, you know, all design happens in some sort of a design program. Um, the web designer should also be skilled in, in something called conversion rate optimization to make sure that, you know, that when visitors do hit our website, that they're more likely to become customers. They Are should you be designing saying that with, designers uh, need to understand marketing? On today, web designers <laughs> should be, correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I know there's, there's probably far and few that have, have studied it. They like, like I, I design sites, you know, I, I took some inspiration from other websites. I hope you like it and I'm done. Um, but if it's not quantifiable, it's not really for marketing. You're just building a pretty picture, a pretty website. Exactly. Um, pretty websites don't generate money. Um, effective websites do, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, building an effective website means starting with a design that's built with a mobile first interface. And I know if you're thinking B2B, a lot of your B2B customers might be on desktop. Your, your dentist office uh, front desk person who's ordering equipment probably isn't doing it from their phone. So it's important to know who your audience is. But either way, Google's still going to use the mobile view of your website when they decide where you're going to rank. So if you're going to strip out some content and some features that that you have on desktop, keep in mind you're stripping that out for search engines too. 
So um, your designer should be thinking about how do I how do I get a user through an experience where they can just use their thumb, right, as mm-hmm. with one hand and be able to tap their way through an experience using autofill on forms, keeping a call to action sticky in the 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 footer of that design. So no matter how they're flicking through the site, they can always very quickly get to that that um, learn more, right, for B2B folks or buy now for B2C. Um, so the designer's a, a, a personality that has to understand a little bit of buyer behavior, has to do some research, has to do some testing on what a design looks like. Once, once that design, uh, you know, the first initial design's been locked down, you're right, it passes on to a web developer. And the web developer will, will have specialized skills in certain platforms. The developer might be really good at building a WordPress theme from that design, meaning they're going to take that design and they're going to use the WordPress templates, right, for the, the header and the footer and the, the homepage, the blog page, right? They're going to take all those kind of out-of-the-box templates and they're going to apply that design, you know, and, and customize it for each of those templates. And that means cutting it up using slices or whatever in, in Photoshop to start with. It means, you know, taking... The, the images off the text and making it actual text that search engines can crawl. It means setting up divs and, and you know, code and headings the way that they should be structured within the, the HTML, the website. Um, making sure that you're not changing core features of whatever CMS that you're using, because if you do, and then you click that magical update WordPress button, your whole website could go away, right? You want to make you sure know, that you're... There's some developers who get over overzealous um, with what they can do. I think they overdevelop, and like you said, they develop something that's yeah. so. Hey, this would be cool. This would be cool. Let me do that. This would be cool. And then, like you said, they they develop but something. Do the users care? Do they do they really need all that functionality? Don't care. Do they need the sliders? Google doesn't care. Exactly. It may be beautiful. I mean, yeah. you got two things. You have the the designer who gets mm-hmm. overzealous with beauty. Like this is beautiful. <laughs> it slows your website down, and Google hates it, but it's beautiful. Uh-huh. Then you have the developer. Who makes it dance and sing, but it slows it down, and Google hates it. So, yeah. both of those need to understand marketing. That's the reason reason why I paused you earlier because I'm a marketer, and I, and I've done those things. I've done web development, I've done web design. But one thing I've learned is that if it's for business, you have to make sure you do it that works for marketing and works for business. And if Google doesn't like it, your design or your development doesn't matter. It's it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting ecosystem because. Their standards, and sometimes we want to be creative. Sometimes we want to be different. Sometimes we want to be unique. And and while there's so much value in that, and I love creativity as much as the next guy. But if a, if a visitor gets to your website and they have to figure out where they go because it's not set up with a standard top navigation, the logo is not in the top left and, and clickable to go to your homepage, right? If it's not set up in the same way that they're used to navigating the internet, and they have to think it's going to cause friction in that whole conversion process. So we want to minimize friction by sticking to standards. Still be unique, be creative, but do it in a way that follows standard you know, industry guidelines so that the user doesn't have to try to figure out how to use your website when they get there. So what are some of the most, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was thinking about, <laughs> I saw a website where I got to the website, it was beautiful, and I swiped to scroll and I couldn't scroll. Oh, no. Oh, I'm the like, map. You got stuck on the Google map or something. No, their website, <laughs> it was a big image. And it, they had a button somewhere where I would click and it would slide or it would change or whatever. Oh, wow. It was a beautiful design. I'm like, I was screaming at the designer. <laughs> I'm like, freaking artist. This is beautiful. But it's not a website. But I can't, can't use it. I can't use it. Do I, do I need to you know, turn in my mouse for something else? Because I can't 
I don't know where to navigate. There was nothing about it that was traditional. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying you had to be square like everyone else, but it bugged the crap out of me that I couldn't even scroll. I wanted to just scroll up to see what was next. There wasn't anything next. The website was only a screen height. That's mm-hmm. all it was. Yep. And it was by design, but most people are used to seeing more than a screen height. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't easy to tell that I had to click somewhere to get to left or right or another page. It was just... Right. wasn't very intuitive. I think it was a fail. Yeah. So, you know, that's one of the things that I think probably also runs into a lot of the things that when, when Google's looking for what works right and the usability, user experience is really big right now. When you're looking at companies' websites, what are some of the challenges you see right now as some of the biggest blockers that, sure. that you see a lot of? You know, I, I kind of feel like the, the biggest challenge most clients have with search engine optimization is what they're doing off the website. On the website, yeah, every every business should be chipping away at that page that drives customers, you know, and doing better at that. I, I think I think everyone everyone should have their eye on those top ten or twenty pages on their website that they know um, need improvement and could be better. That when they have some extra budget, they should put it into redesigning those pages and making them better. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the biggest challenge is off the website. Yeah, the, the technical part's important, and Google has recently said that. You know, the, the new core web vitals updates that they're making are, are more than a tiebreaker. But honestly, if you have the absolute best content and people get what they need and a majority of the people who are searching click on your listing and stay there, you're going to be okay. You don't need to have perfect page speed scores. You don't need to have perfect technical SEO. Your site doesn't need to validate W3C standards, right? If you've got the better, more helpful page for users on the devices that they're visiting your website from, um, you're going to be okay. It's the biggest challenge is getting other websites to mention you and those search mm-hmm. terms that you want to appear for. Google already knows what page on your site to rank for those keywords. Now it's up to you to get your business mentioned in correlation to those search terms off the internet, on large news sites and industry sites, to be everywhere your competitors are mentioned. Whenever they're mentioning you, you could go back to them and say, hey, thanks for mentioning us. Could you make our name clickable so they could visit our website? That's yeah. asking for a link without asking for a link, right? So I think I think that's the biggest challenge right now is the off page. The the technical part of, of SEO, you know, the, the the primary things to pay attention to with the team are security, privacy, uh, accessibility, um, mobile friendliness, and then chipping away at conversion rate. If you're if you're focused on those things every month, you're going to be fine. And speed does help conversion rate, so why not keep chipping away at that? But don't do it for the sake of a technical audit that an SEO consultant did that gave you do it for trying to get more customers um, from the traffic you're already getting to those pages and focus your energy on trying to build your brand. Stop, stop trying to to clean in-house um, and start putting up more signs outside the house to tell people where to go to find you. You just relieved me of so much stress. <laughs> well, because our, you know, our website, it's a good example of that. It's working. Um, the content is good. It's driving business. It's converting. Yep. All those things that are important to business are working. Mm-hmm. If you run an audit, oh my God, the scores are horrible. Yeah. And I'm like, well, we probably have a bad template we chose or the bad design from three, four years ago. That's going to be a heavy lift to change. And the question is, is it worth that heavy lift to change those things if the site is actually working? You know, I feel like if you're a tiebreaker for your competitor, like, man, my competitor's page is just as good as mine. I ran a, a survey with Mechanical Turk and 50% say they choose me, 50% say they choose them. So um, we're equal to them in, in the quality of our content. And we look at the links that are coming to our pages and they're equal in terms of the quality and quantity. 
um, the tech could be a tiebreaker for you. If, if you feel like you can't do any better with your design and if you feel like you've exhausted all of those different link opportunities, which you never really do, but um, if you feel like you have, then, then yeah, chip away at some of that stuff. But rarely do you ever get to that place where you feel like your page is genuinely better than the competitors. You're always yeah. going to be sort of critical of your pages and you should be. I mean, search engines that, you know, the algorithms work in patterns. It's not a set it, forget it. It's not a, I have, you know, I just got 20 links to my website. Now I should be ranking better. Well, how many did you get this month? None. We got 20 last month though. We're good. Well, what's that say about the pattern of things that are happening with your on-page and off-page? Oh, so every month I should be improving my page. Yeah. Every month I should be getting new links and mentions of, you know, our brand and, and those pages. Yeah. It's about patterns and velocity. Um, that's how algorithms work. They don't work with a one-time, you know, okay, I have database that this is how this site is and where it should rank. I'm done. No, they're constantly changing and shifting and evolving and, and refreshing and recycling. So I would say just just keep nurturing, you know, your your on page, your off page, and what users see in the search results. You know, by putting more structured uh, information and and rich results, so that users want to click on you more often, um, and that they want to stay on your website more often because you're improving those you know those focal points. If you're if you're holding your team accountable to those three things, my on page, my off page, and my search behavior signals, and every month you're holding each other accountable to better results, you're going to be just owning the search. You're going to watch as, as you continue to grow slowly over time and your competitors go up and then down, up and then down. They play this crazy headache game because they're trying to game search results with techniques where you are focusing on strategy. You're, you're about the style of SEO and they're about the fashion. So I would say be the, be the stylish SEO, not the fashionable one. Wow. So for, for those companies who are focused on you know, the fastest host or, the, or, or debating about CDNs, you know, having those things, <laughs> three things you just said are more important over time if they're consistent Absolutely. with those things. Great. Because I've been there before. I've been that person dressed <laughs> over CDN. <laughs> and sometimes you're not going to be able to. If you're, think about it, if you're a gallery, right? If, if you're promoting paintings and photos, you're not going to want to put lower quality images on your website. People are going to expect high quality images. They're going to expect the page to take a while to load because you've got great, really high definition pictures. Mm -hmm. There's ways that you can load them uh, where they load faster and they're still high quality and there's ways that you can optimize them but your page is never going to be as fast as a, a you know an article somewhere because it's really rich in media and it requires high definition images that are going to take a while to google's not going to penalize you because um a page is slow on a page that users expect it to be that's just crazy you know yeah, definitely well, Steve, it's been a great conversation. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's you know, been fun. I look forward to keeping in touch because there's so much information. And, you know, as someone who, uh, my background is not far from yours. I, I've done web design, web development. Um, you know, now I'm in marketing. And yeah. I, all the technical stuff, sometimes I wish I didn't know <laughs> because I shouldn't be worrying about a CDN or about, you know, the report, the analytics yeah. report that Google gave that's just like, oh my God, that score is that low. What are we going to do? When in actuality, business is still happening. Um, and, and I see some companies that, you know, are the top company in their industry who have horrible Google statistics. I'm like, mm -hmm. that's proof right there that is, it's not everything. It's not the whole it's world. Not, it's not build, build a plan, create a roadmap together. What technical things do we want to work on? What's our content roadmap look like? Where are the places that we want to earn visibility off the website? And what are some of the tests that we want to do with how our listings appear in search results? Focus on those and you've got yourself a good long-term SEO strategy. Excellent. 
Nice wrap up. So before we go, Steve, tell us how can our listeners get in touch with you in uh, either online or in person or about your courses or whatever. Oh, I'm so easy to find. Just just search SEO Steve, right? Um, I think I have that handle everywhere. If you want to talk to anyone on our team, we love to help businesses. Um, we're at a place, you know, where we can't really take on a lot of new clients. But if you want to ask questions, if you want us to hop on a quick call and give you some free advice, we're happy to do that. Uh, just use the handle Wiedemann, W-I-I-D-E-M-A-N. That course I mentioned is just academyofsearch.com. Uh, use code SEO Steve for free access to all the good stuff there. Awesome. And, and thanks to the listeners. If you're listening to the podcast and want to see Steve and I, video the podcast and others are available uh, in the podcast section of contentmonsters.com. Once again, Steve, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mr. Judge. Thank you for listening to the Business of Marketing Podcast, a show brought to you by ContentMonster.com, the producer of B2B digital marketing content. Show notes can be found on ContentMonster.com as well as aleejudge.com. To continue the conversation, be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform.